This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. The Gospel of Mark. And we're in chapter 15. We're coming very close to the end. These are dark and terrible chapters, especially after the opening of this gospel, which was so filled with life and joy and liberation and deliverance as Jesus is going around healing and raising the dead and bringing freedom to the demon-possessed. And now we see Christ bound and led away to death. We're in Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 32. Listen to the word of the Lord, the gospel of God. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, hail king of the Jews, Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. It is remarkable how terse Mark is in his description of the crucifixion. He is not lingering on painful, elaborate details. He simply writes, and they crucified him. And they crucified him. Now, unlike the people of Mark's world, we are not used to the state publicly torturing people to death. And when Mark uses that word crucifixion, the Christians he's writing to knows exactly what he's talking about. 
And simply because we're not in that world and we don't have experience of this, let me sketch and sketch very briefly what the sufferings of Christ involved. First of all, Jesus was flogged. And the Romans used a whip called the flagellum, but it was known by its nickname, the scorpion. And it had, I believe, ten leather thongs, and at the end of the thongs were pieces of bone, shards of metal, sometimes even hooks. And you would be flung to the ground or bound to a post. You'd be stripped naked so your bare back and buttocks were exposed to the person with the whip. And with the first lash of the whip, your skin would be hanging down in ribbons. The Romans showed no mercy. And again and again, the whip would fall on your bare tissue as the whip would rip into your flesh. And Josephus, the historian, describes somewhere very casually how one time he had some people flog so badly their intestines were exposed. So many victims did not even make it as far as the crucifixion. They were lying dead in a pool of blood, having been flogged. And Jesus is severely, severely flogged by the soldiers. And then they stop, not out of any mercy, but because they don't want their victim to die just yet. They want to draw every ounce of pain possible from his body. And so they lead Jesus through the streets. They force their way through the crowds coming in for the Passover festival. They lead him through the streets. This execution squad would have been made up of four soldiers and a centurion. And they are leading Jesus, probably by a rope. And around his neck is a wooden placard with the charge upon which he has been condemned. The king of the Jews. And over his shoulders, Jesus is carrying the patibulum, the cross beam. The cross, of course, is made up of two parts. And the stipes, the vertical pole, would have been left permanently outside of Jerusalem. So that everyone going by would always see this reminder of the power of Roman justice and vengeance. And it had a notch in it where this patibulum would go. And Jesus, as the condemned, would have been carrying this behind his neck tied to his hands, going through the streets. And Jesus clearly has been so exhausted by, first of all, an all-night interrogation, the trial for his life, and then being flogged to an inch of his life by the Roman soldiers, that he collapses in the street and he can go no further. And the Romans have to draft some guy coming in out of the country. Jesus is not going, undergoing execution as some superhero. He is not filled with extraordinary strength. Jesus is being flogged and crucified as a human being, as weak as you and I are. And then he is led outside the western gate of the city to the place of the skull. It may have been called that because it looked like a skull, but more likely that was the place of death, Golgotha. And there is that vertical, three vertical poles waiting for Jesus and his fellow condemned. And then Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh, perhaps by the soldiers 
more likely by Jewish women, and this was most probably a kind of narcotic to take the edge off the pain, kind of an anesthetic. But Jesus refuses to drink. He is not going to allow himself to have his pain dulled. He is going to absorb the fullness of this horrifying execution. And then Mark tells us, and they crucified him. Jesus' bare back would have been flung on the ground, his arms stretched out, and the Roman soldier would have pounded a nail through each of his wrists, fastening him to the patibulum, and then they would have raised him, possibly on forked sticks, they would have raised him and hooked him into that notch on the stipes, made it fast, and then driven nails through his ankles to affix him to this wood. The word excruciating, of course, comes from the word cross, excruciating crucifixion, because there's no experience we can think of that would have been more horrifyingly painful than crucifixion. First of all, bolts of pain would have been shooting through Jesus' body from the severed um, nerves in his wrists, his bare back, the bare tissue that had just been whipped and torn apart by the Roman floggers would have been pressing against the rough wood. He would have been enduring extreme thirst under the hot sun beating down. Insects would have been crawling into his wounds and orifices. And worst of all, was how painful it was simply to breathe. Because the way that his body was positioned, the way any crucified person's body was positioned, they would have had to lift themselves up either by pulling on their wrists or pushing on their feet simply to exhale. And it was all designed to draw out death as long as possible. All other forms of execution are designed to bring death quickly, whether it's beheading or the electric chair or lethal injection. But the Romans used crucifixion to draw out suffering as long as possible. But all this horrifying information Mark leaves in the background. Because truly the heart of the cross is not the physical agonies that Jesus endured. And Mark describes almost nothing about the physical pain. What Mark and the other Gospels do linger on is the extreme humiliation that Christ endured. The spitting, the striking in the face, the nakedness the degradation, and the real horror of the cross was its shame. The cross was about shame. And in her book about dealing with the cancer that eventually killed her, Susan Sontag writes, it is not suffering as such that is most deeply feared, It's suffering that degrades. There's something even worse than physical suffering, and that is degradation, humiliation, and shame. That is what human beings 
fear more than almost anything. Shame. It's this universal human experience. In his book, Shame Interrupted, Ed Welch defines shame this way. Shame, he says, is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. And shame makes you feel exposed, and shame makes you feel humiliated. Shame is what people experience when they transgress social boundaries, or when people transgress our social boundaries. Guilt is one thing. Guilt is an awful thing to bear, but shame is even worse. Because guilt says, you made a mistake. You made a terrible mistake. That's guilt. But shame says, you are a mistake. You are a terrible mistake. And shame contaminates us, and it makes us feel like we are contaminating those around us. And although few of us would admit it, almost all of us, perhaps all of us, deal with debilitating shame in one way or the other. It is a horrible experience. When I was in the fourth grade, I peed my pants in gym class. I was scared of the teacher. I was afraid to ask to go to the bathroom. We were playing British Bulldog, and I tried to hold it in. I tried to hold it in, and I couldn't. And I wet my shorts, and there was a puddle on the floor, and I fled humiliated from the room. And the worst part of the experience actually was sitting in the classroom by myself with my change of clothes, and my teacher came in, and he looked at me in disgust, and he said, do you do this at home too? That was a shameful experience, but that barely touches on what shame really is, because that was a, an experience of momentary embarrassment. It was painful at the time, but it's not shameful because I can actually stand up here and share it with you. But there are other experiences in my life that I would not share with you, that I would not share with my wife, and that I don't really even share with myself. But they're in there, and we all have shame down there somewhere. And we all struggle with this fear, I think, that the truth, the horrible truth about you is going to be revealed. And everyone will look at you and learn what a fraud you are. We all know this dream of being in a public place and looking down and realize you're in your underwear or you're naked. No one has to be taught to have that dream because it expresses this deep-seated fear we have of being naked and exposed and ashamed before everybody. And this shame is a universal experience. Of course, there are some cultures that are highly attuned to honor shame issues, Korea or Afghanistan, but it is a powerful motivation, shame is, that drives all human beings and all societies. 
The rules may be a bit different, but the game is the same. We use shame to keep people within boundaries. And if someone transgresses, we put shame on them. And this shame goes back a long way. A long, long way. Almost to the very beginning. Adam and Eve were in the garden. God was their father who had provided everything for them. And they acted in horrible disloyalty in taking the fruit and believing the serpent's temptation that they could find their own honor and be like gods themselves. And when they realize what they have done, they hide in the bushes because they know they are naked and they are ashamed and they are expelled from the garden. They're cast out. And ever since then, human beings have been dealing with shame. And we would do anything to get rid of shame. We have devised so many mechanisms to free ourselves from our shame. And we all do it differently. Some of us try to hide from it. Some of us thrust it down. Some of us compensate it for it by seeking success and honor. Some of us try to smear our shame on others, but we can never remove our shame. Our past actions cannot be undone. Yes, I am this kind of person who would do these kind of things, and I cannot undo that. And we try so desperately to paper the stain over, but the shame seeps through. And we need someone. We need someone who can know us and turn toward us and reach out and somehow, somehow take our shame away. And so what Mark highlights in his description of Christ being crucified is not the physical pain that Jesus endures, but the shame that he takes on his shoulders. Because the cross, above everything, was an instrument of humiliation. Listen to what, Francis, or what Fleming Rutledge writes in her book, The Crucifixion. Crucifixion, as a means of execution in the Roman Empire, had as its express purpose the elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race. It cannot be said too strongly that was its function, to eliminate its victims from the human race. It was meant to indicate to all who might be toying with subversive ideas that the crucified persons were not of the same species as either the executioners or the spectators and were therefore not only expendable but deserving of ritualized extermination. That is what crucifixion meant. And the Romans perfected this. Crucifixion had been known for hundreds of years. It probably originated with the Persians and it spread throughout the ancient world. But the Romans perfected crucifixion. And they crucified tens of thousands of people to hold their empire together. 
And the executioners would grow bored with standard executions and play around with different ways that they could torment and crucify their victims. And it was all about bringing shame on anyone who tried to stand up to Rome. And in the story of Christ's suffering and dying, his humiliation is at the forefront. Jesus Christ is arrested, having been betrayed and forsaken by his followers. And one of his closest disciples denies that he even knows Jesus. That is shame. And he's condemned as the crowd is shouting out, screaming, crucify him. This person, this thing is not fit to live. Crucify him. Everyone, everyone is shouting. And he is condemned in the Roman terms to the death of a beast. And Jesus is brought into the courtyard of the palace and the whole company of soldiers would have been between 200 and 600 men gather around to strip and strike and mock Jesus. And these are the occupation forces. They weren't actually Roman soldiers. They were auxiliaries commanded by Roman officers made up of Gentiles from Syria and the neighboring countries. And you can imagine an occupation force, a small occupation force, trying to keep down a resentful and violent people, constantly on edge for some sort of guerrilla attack. Now they have in their hands someone who supposedly is the mastermind behind some sort of rebellion. And all their frustration and all their contempt for these dirty Jews is unleashed on Jesus. Now, there was flogging in the Old Testament. The law of the desert was severe, but there was a limit on it. Deuteronomy says, only 39 lashes, lest your brother be degraded in your sight. The Romans had no such limit. They did not see their victim as a brother, And they had no hesitation about bringing degradation upon him. Jesus must be degraded. And they mock him with this parody of kingship. They clothe him in some old purple garment, the garment of royalty. They press a crown of thorns on his head. They mockingly salute him. Hail, king of the Jews, the cry used for Caesar. They smash him in the face again and again with a mock scepter, and then they prostrate themselves, bowing in reverence before this helpless king of the Jews. And Jesus is anointed with their spit as their saliva runs down his bloody face. He's momentarily clothed so he can be led out through the streets. And passers-by draw into shop doorways to see this former prophet, this so-called miracle worker, being led away as a condemned man. He's not allowed to die in the city because criminal scum like this Jesus do not belong in the city. They do not belong in human society. 
He must be taken outside of the gate to be ostracized. And there on the ground, Jesus is stripped naked. The covering of modesty is torn away. His private parts are put on public view. And he's crucified on that cross, which was the death of a slave. Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified except under the express order of the emperor. Crucifixion was most of all the death of a slave, of someone subhuman. And he's put on that cross by the side of the public highway. It's designed for maximum public exposure. And the bypassers, those filing into the city for the Passover feast to celebrate the provision of God's lamb of deliverance, wag their head in contempt. They throw garbage at him. They yell insults towards this thing, this creature that is pinned up there like an, insult, like an insect, his feet not fit to touch the earth that we humans walk on. The cross was a cross of shame. Shame. And you and I do everything we can to avoid shame. We twist and turn so that shame does not come on us. And if it does come on us, we will do everything in our power to rid ourselves of shame. But Jesus does not avoid shame. He does not avoid shame. Here is the Son of God sitting at the right hand of his Father, clothed with all glory and honor, and there is no speck of shame on him. Everything is right with him. But he comes to this earth to take on himself human shame. He came to be defiled. And Jesus goes around. He's eating with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. He is stretching out his hand to touch lepers. And he's taking on himself the defilement and shame of sinners all around him. And now he's pinned on this cross, pinned between two criminals numbered with the transgressors, reckoned a shameful scum of a sinner. This is Jesus. And the chief priests and the religious leaders mockingly talk among themselves and they say this, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. You have to understand that the Greek word save also means healed. When Jesus went around healing, it's the same word. So here's this Jesus. He's gone around all over this land saving slash healing people. The deaf 
are given ears to hear, the blind are given eyes to see, the very dead are being raised to life. Those with demons are having their demons powerfully cast out of them. All these miracles have happened, and this Jesus could do this for others, but he cannot save himself. That is the prick of their taunts on Jesus. He cannot save himself. And of course, Mark would have us see there is deep irony in their words. They are speaking more truth than they know, just like the soldiers were speaking more truth than they knew in mocking Jesus as king of the Jews. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. And the irony is that the very way that Jesus is going to save and heal this world of sinners is by not saving himself. The highest good for all of us is saving ourselves. By all means, I must save myself. I must avoid suffering. I must avoid shame at all costs. But Jesus is willingly taking that suffering and shame on himself. Because the only way to restore us to honor and glory, to bring us into a right place in God's family, is if Jesus allows himself to be shamed. And then they say, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Come down from the cross Jesus, you Messiah, you King of Israel, so that we may see and believe. Their hearts were hard and they were unwilling to see what God was doing right in front of them. Because this person on the cross, naked and bleeding, is the very Son of God suffering for the sins of the world. They are there at the crux of history. Salvation itself is happening before their very eyes. And they cannot and they will not see it. Because it's only with the heart of faith, that openness to God, that we are able to see what God is doing in the scandal of the cross. Christ bore your shame on the cross. Christ bore your shame on the cross. And your shame says to you, and it says to me, worthless, zero, nothing. And that is what Christ became for the shamed, the sinners, the contaminated. He became worthless, zero, nothing, not fit to live. Christ came to bear your shame. Are you willing to release your shame to Jesus? We all have our ways of trying to deal with our shame. We all have the little games we play to get status against other people and to feel better about ourselves. And the Holy Spirit is calling you today to let go of all those ways of manipulating your shame and your honor and hand that shame over to Jesus. He is hanging on the cross 
for the shame of the world. He can handle your shame. He's dying for everybody else. Why can he not die for you and your shame? Jesus looks at you and he knows you. He knows the things you are unwilling to know about yourself. And incredibly, he is not repulsed. He feels compassion to you, caught and trapped in shame. He feels compassion for those who are shamed. Shame because of what others have done to us, what we have done to others. He has compassion. And so Jesus simply asks you to confess those things to him, not as a way to further shame you and rub your face in it, but so you can let go of it and so he can take it for you. So what I invite you to do now, we're going to take a moment of silence. Close the eyes of your body. Open the eyes of your spirit. Behold Christ, shamed, humiliated, degraded for you. And name to him what it is that is shaming you. And even if you are unable to name it, hand it over to him and transfer by faith that shame to Jesus. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.